It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. This podcast is produced by PolicyForum.net and we're based at Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. Crawford is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school and if you want to prepare for a policy-facing role, there is no better place to come and study. Check out our range of short courses and public policy master's programs at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Now, before we kick off this week's pod, I'd like to invite you to submit your questions for the upcoming third episode of Ask Policy Forum. I'm really looking forward to it. The first two episodes were a lot of fun. And if you haven't listened to it before, well, that might be because you're not part of our Policy Forum pod group yet. So now is your chance to join us and get access to that special Ask Policy Forum podcast series. It's the podcast where you get to ask the questions. So you can find us on Facebook, just type in Policy Forum Pod on there and join the gang. Now today we want to take a look at the topic of risk. COVID-19 has obviously shone a spotlight on society's vulnerabilities. Many nations have been hit hard by the virus and it's exposed how unprepared many of them were to tackle a global pandemic. But the bad news is it's not just disease outbreaks that threaten governments and citizens around the world. A recent report by the Commission on Human Future identified 10 threats facing humanity. Climate change, environmental decline and extinction, nuclear weapons, resource scarcity, which includes water scarcity, food insecurity, dangerous new technologies, overpopulation, chemical pollution, pandemic disease, and denial and misinformation. So on today's episode, we want to have a look at risk and specifically how policymakers and individuals address these challenges to build a better future. And to address this question, I'm delighted to welcome back two of our podcast favourites who are also authors of this report. Dr. Arna Greta-Hunter is a clinical senior lecturer at the ANU School of Medicine and a staff specialist at Canberra Hospital. Hello, Arna Greta. Hi, how are you, Martin? Good to be back. I'm very well, thank you. It's great to have you back. And Dr. John Houston is an honorary professorial fellow at Crawford School and is, of course, a former leader of the federal opposition. Hello, John. Hello, Martin. How are you? I'm very well. And welcome to Twitter as well, John. How's that experience working out for you? Well, I was determined not to join Twitter for many, many years, but I've been told that, you know, it is a way of disseminating uh, and stimulate it's, it's disseminating good good ideas and stimulating debate. I'm not so worried about the negative. I mean, I had a policy in which I've had, adhered to since the Fraser government, but I never read anything said about me. <laughs> never read any of the books or articles, so I just have this uh, capacity to so ignore all those Twitter trolls. <laughs> 
you're, you're, telling, you're telling me I might need it. <laughs> All those Twitter trolls will just be shouting into the void. I hope they get some satisfaction from doing that, yes. <laughs> now, before we get into the content of the report, I'd like to ask you to tell us a bit more about the Commission for the Human Future that you're both part of. What's the aim of, of, of this? So, look, I think that going back to where it comes from, the, the Commission for the Human Future came um, from a group of emeritus professors getting together at ANU really to talk about the future of humanity, a small topic for an afternoon session. Um, but out of that topic of discussion grew the Commission for the Human Future. And, and I think the main person behind this uh, is Bob Douglas, an extraordinary professor of public health from ANU. Um, and so it was his vision to bring together a group of people to talk deliberately about the, the future of humanity. Um, and so the Commission for the Human Future was born last year uh, and a, a group of us came together at the end of last year making some plans about how we might be effective. I think the, the role of the Commission is not so much to solve the problems, but it's really about being a conduit of information from the extraordinary research that's done in Australia and internationally on really complex problems, how we can translate that into a broad uh, public environment, how we can get people on the street talking about it, talking about it around their kitchen tables, and get our governments talking seriously about the existential and catastrophic risks that face us. So the commissions particularly um, recognised about 10 existential and catastrophic risks. It's worthwhile, I guess, defining this at the beginning. A catastrophic risk is a risk that has a significant effect on a large proportion of the population. And an existential risk actually threatens our existence. And so out of the 10 risks that are identified by the commission, there's a combination of both catastrophic and existential risks. I tend to bunch them into groups. Um, there's an a set of environmental risks, risks around climate change, risks around resource security, water and food, uh, problems with pollution and chemicals, uh, particularly thinking about whether our population numbers are sustainable with the amount of consumption that we have and, and the population question is in that report. We've got behavioural issues, so uh, particularly thinking about artificial intelligence and, uh, and the way in which dysregulated use of artificial intelligence has the potential to threaten us either with a catastrophic uh, interaction or otherwise. Um, and war as a behavioural problem with the way that societies work. And so particularly the threat of nuclear war is, is an existential risk. And finally, delusion. And delusion or I think misinformation, um, it's a really interesting final one. It's the tenth of the, the existential and catastrophic risks that we've identified. And we spent quite a lot of time at the roundtable talking about this final threat, partly to think about how to frame that. Um, delusion is recognising that perhaps we, we don't think that things will happen. So if people had talked about a pandemic risk in a public space 12 months ago, we probably all would have ignored it. Oh, that's never going to happen. It's not particularly relevant. And so that's what we mean when we're talking about a risk of delusion. But I think more importantly or more broadly than that, we can see risks in the way that information is transmitted and, and discussed in our public sphere. And so risks of misinformation, risks around fake news, risks around a failure to really appreciate the broad interdependence of all of these risks. 
And that's the other point to make, which is that these these catastrophic and, and existential risks are interconnected. And we, again, watching the dynamic between coronavirus and climate change, for example, is a fascinating dynamic to watch in the real time, in the lived experience that we all have right now, where the interventions that we've put in place to contend with this extraordinary pandemic have flow-on effects in terms of our carbon footprint and the pollution issues that stem around that. Um, and so recognising interdependence, that you can't solve one problem without affecting some of the dynamics around the other problems, that's part of the, the role of the Commission, is to give people more confidence and understanding of the interdependence in our policy space. Now, I, I, I want to ask about the timing of this report, because presumably it's been in the works for some time, but it came out in, you know, whilst the, the, the world is dealing with this pandemic coronavirus crisis. In terms of timing, is this bad news at a bad time or is there a possibility that the fact that we're dealing with a pandemic right now might help to kind of focus thinking on the other uh, sort of risks that potentially affect humans? Perhaps, John, if I can put that to you. Yeah, well, look, what we've been saying basically is this uh, COVID-19 is pretty much a dress rehearsal for what awaits us if we continue sort of to ignore the laws of science, to ignore the significance of the physical world um, and the demands of several catastrophic risks that Anna Greta's just mentioned, but particularly things like climate change. And um, just as Australia was disturbingly unprepared for the recent bushfires and the drought, even though they had recurred many times in our history and the drought, uh, sorry, and the globe was unprepared for the virus, even though there'd been warnings about this risk for many years, as you just said, I mean, even if uh, it had been referred to as a risk uh, six or 12 months before, it would have been ignored. And um, so governments and and policy authorities, I think, just seem incapable of accepting science and scientific evidence, at least accepting it to the level that they should. Um, They fail to listen to clear warnings, obviously, and, uh, and other predictions, and they're generally unwilling to think longer term and strategically. And, of course, one of the the great enemies of all this is that politics has become so such an increasingly short-term game, quite often just point scoring on the other side or shifting blame to the other side, rather than dealing with the issues, kicking the challenges down the road. And um, so uh, they haven't been motivated, as you said, to develop a plan for how to avoid or manage a series of these catastrophic risks. And so our feeling is that, um, you know, we should, we should look at the circumstances of this virus and learn from it in that sense. I mean, I think people would be amazed at how much or how fast communities right around the globe have been prepared to adjust and adjust their behaviour in ways they never imagined just a few weeks ago in order to respond to the threat of this pandemic. And I think that gives me great heart. So it's not just a negative message about the risks it's a positive message. It's looking at the opportunities that are there to actually turn these sort of risks into opportunities to to um, move communities forward, society forward. Uh, in the end, uh, perhaps ensuring the survival of human society. Under Greta, why were so many countries poorly prepared to face the? pandemic that we're going through. I mean, we've seen some 
some examples where countries have responded very quickly and very well. Australia is probably one of those. New Zealand is certainly one of those. And we've seen countries who are at the opposite end of the scale, you know, the UK and the US in particular. But, but why were so many countries so poorly prepared to, to, to face what we're going through? I should start by the with the caveat that I'm not at all expert in in pandemic responses, but I, I can certainly make some observations. Um, and I guess one of the observations would be to look at places like Hong Kong and Taiwan uh, and maybe Singapore, where they've had some recent experience. So the experience of things like MERS or SARS back in 2003 were more more real in their mind. Um, so I think we can see some of the failures to act in terms of the virus uh, through the prism of that that uh, that catastrophic or existential risk of delusion that we didn't think that it was going to happen to us in the way that it, it what did actually evolve. And you, you, I think you see this in the way that um, President Trump is responding to the virus in the United States, where there's a real disconnect between understanding the science and then an appropriate response, um, which can really only be explained by, through either a callous disregard for human life or through a, a delusion that it's not going to happen to me or to us. Um, and so, you know, mo- most countries of the world have a pandemic response uh, plan in place. It was really just a matter of being able to recognise that the risk was real um, and that that pandemic plan needed to be rolled out. John, are we any more prepared to face any of the other threats that are identified in this report? I don't believe that the globe really is. And um, we can look, for example, at climate change, which has had an enormous focus over quite some time. In, in fact, you could go back several decades from the initially significant warnings. And, uh, you know, the reality of that challenge and the magnitude of that challenge has not been recognised. The urgency of that challenge has not been recognised. And our government's a classic example where maybe three decades ago we were taking it seriously and then we got into this world of short-term point scoring, what are now called the climate wars. We haven't made any net progress. Uh, in in dealing with it and recognising it, and indeed not just the risk itself, but in terms of the of the um, opportunities that that come with it. And so, when you look at something like the Paris Accord, this is good. Uh, it's a collective response. It's recognising a global responsibility, as with the pandemic. But within that, each individual country, of course, has to adjust to its own circumstances and the magnitude of the challenge in their case. Uh, But when you look country by country or when you look globally, we are nowhere near accepting the magnitude of the climate challenge and the the risks that are involved and the urgency of of the response. I mean, for example, the Paris commitments are uh, collectively just for fairly modest uh, improvement in, in global warming, but more likely to end up with maybe three or four degrees global warming when, in fact, um, you know, the world should be looking at net 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 zero emissions by 2050, or or even better, and um, you know that would require the world to uh, be cutting emissions by about 50 percent by 2030. Nobody's doing that. Nobody's on that scale yet. So we recognise that the risk has been recognised, has been debated now for several decades. Yet you don't see the substance of the response that you would expect, given the magnitude of that challenge and. Um, you can go through each of the others, uh, the risks, uh, catastrophic risks that we've identified, and you can take a similar view. We've known about the threat of nuclear war for a long time. 
and everyone says, oh, you know, we'll never get to that stage. We won't ever, you know, sink to that level. Yet you're about 12 hours away from, from that happening. And we've had circumstances where concern has risen quite quickly. I mean, uh, the activities of North Korea not that long ago, for example, some of the debate around the role of uh, the nuclearization of Iran, for example, in those cases, you're not that far away. And uh, yet the world is still, you know, the big big holders of nuclear weapons are still increasing their stockpiles. They're still improving, te- using technology to improve the effectiveness of those weapons. I mean, we haven't faced the reality that this is a really serious catastrophic risk, uh, although we talk about it. Food security is another one. You know, we, I think it was said uh, that we, uh, you know, that, that the, the, the demands of the population, uh, the projected population through this century, will exhaust our food and water supply quite quickly. Uh, and, um, you know, that reality, while it's referred to and acknowledged, isn't addressed. And you can address it now and, and, and reduce the significance of the risk, but also generate a whole lot of opportunities, new ways of producing food and uh, regenerating agriculture and so on. So these, these are known. There's a lot of known evidence in each one of the areas of our catastrophic risk. It's broadly accepted evidence, except it has not filtered through to the policymakers and to the political leaders uh, in a way that you would hope. So we're hoping, or I'm hoping, that the, uh, the coronavirus actually does precipitate some longer-term strategic thinking. We have to recover from it, for example, um, you know, we can't just imagine that the economies of the world are going to bounce back, snap back, suddenly unemployment will disappear back to its pre-COVID-19 levels, uh, that uh, the growth will be restored quickly. Uh, and it is an opportunity in that context to take the process of recovery and focus it on some of these these serious challenges, which bring with them, as I say, great opportunities for economic growth, for, uh, for sustainable growth, I should say, and for for uh, new jobs and and uh, and so on. So that that's why you asked about the timing. I think, although it's never a good time, I guess, in many ways, to raise some of these issues with governments, uh, this is, I think, a very effective opportunity to say, look, what you're living with now, uh, this lived experience, is really a dress rehearsal for what else might happen in a number of other areas. And a smart government will recognise the inevitability of a lot of that and get on it and do something about it rather than let it to continue to drift. I wonder here about the psychology of the language because humans aren't terribly good at assessing risks and you know we and we work with risks every 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 day of the every day of the week it's a you know it's a risk if I get in the car that there's a possibility of a of a car accident it's a risk that if I you know bite into an apple that my tooth might break um, and we've seen in the in the climate change dis- discussions that you know a lot of people have stopped talking about climate change. They've started talking about global heating. They started referring to it as the, as the climate crisis. Is there any chance that the global pandemic could focus minds on that word risk and what it actually means in practice? Perhaps if I can put that to you, Anagrada. Oh, look, I think one of the really interesting parts of the report and the discussion we're trying to promote here is around interdependence. And so, you know, risk is one variable there, um, but the other side of that equation is that when you act on one thing, you're actually facilitating action in other spheres as well, both positive and negative. 
Um, and so the really interesting public discussion, I think, is around the synergies that exist between the different policy areas that matter to all of us. Just going back to whether these risks are, are likely to happen or, li- or whether we've got a sense that this is a real risk, if you think about the last six months uh, in the part of Australia that all of us are sitting in at the moment, uh, we've been through extraordinary experiences that are really difficult to predict beforehand. Did we, we could have predicted the magnitude of the fire, but would we have understood what the risks involved with bushfire smoke were until we'd lived through it? I think it's hard to know. Um, so what I'm interested to see, and certainly the conversations that I've had in the last couple of weeks around the Commission's report, gives me hope that we can begin to better appreciate the interdependence of, of risk and decision-making processes. Um, and I think that we've got this extraordinary opportunity with coronavirus to really look at, at the benefits of transformative change. And I've said this a few times that transformative change is clearly underway. We've got economic disruption of a scale that we would never have been able to imagine. I, I would have struggled to imagine what we're experiencing at the moment. And yet we're in that process. And so recognising, again, the interdependence between these various risks, all of which can potentially threaten our long-term wellbeing. Um, We've got the most extraordinary opportunity right now to build society that will be better. And these feel like big issues, doesn't it? It seems extraordinary to be talking about the future of humanity or the future of the human race. The language around that can be quite confronting. And again, I think that's part of the role for the Commission for the Human Future is to give people confidence of engaging. Of course, all of us have a role to play in the in the future of humanity. And so talking about that explicitly, it, it has never been a better time. Well, listeners, let's take a quick break there, but we're back shortly to talk some more about how these 10 risks are interconnected, as well as what uh, policymakers can do to be better prepared. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. I'm still here with Dr. Anna Greta Hunter and Dr. John Hewson. Now, before the break, Anna Greta mentioned that these risks can't be seen in isolation. So, John, the report argues that these problems must be addressed simultaneously in ways that make none of them worse. That sounds like a huge task. Can you tell us where we would start? Well, I mean, you obviously start with recognising the significance of each of the risks and then start to think about the uh, the links between between risks, and um, I, I think that um, one of the downsides in some of this, if I take it from a different point of view, is uh, there's been a bit of a focus uh, on the link between what, the response to the pandemic and and climate change, 
And I've seen people say, look, we don't have to worry about climate change because emissions have come down so dramatically as a result of the policies that were put in place, medical and economic and social policies put in place in response to the, in, in response to the, uh, the challenge of the pandemic. But seriously, you'd hardly recommend lockdowns and uh, economic collapses of the magnitude of the Great Depression <laughs> as an effective policy response to climate. It's important that you recognise uh, that uh, that the risk of the pandemic could be managed, is being managed. It may not be have been managed as well as people would have hoped, and maybe we've still got a long way to go. It's one of the areas, uh, you know, a lot of what we do is actually learning by doing, learning uh, exactly how serious this virus is and how fast it can spread and just how infectious it is and so on. At the same time, though, it does raise the, the thought that, look, um, you know, we've been able to move public opinion and uh, governments and government policy quite dramatically in response to the pandemic. Shouldn't we be thinking about that in relation to other challenges like climate? And uh, so I think that that's a, a current example. It's in the, in the public debate right now as to, you know, I mean, people are saying, oh, well, you know, we should back off. I think uh, this pandemic says, look, back off. Uh, the climate deniers have been hoping, I guess, these sort of circumstances would come. But uh, really, if you look at it objectively, it tells you the opportunity that is there, the urgency of the problem and the opportunity that is there. A lot of people would be fairly cynical and doubtful about government's ability to tackle these risks, particularly keeping in mind the fairly short electoral cycles. You know, they're only in sort of power for three years. And, you know, much of that tends to be about putting in place policies which will get them re-elected. So how do we balance the kind of risks that you're talking about here uh, with the sh- sort of short-termism that uh, infuses politics? Well, that's, a, that's a really difficult question, isn't it? And I think that uh, that was certainly a topic for the for discussion at our first roundtable meeting, and I'm no doubt that that will be part of the continued discussion arising from the report uh, the two the two themes really that arose, or a number of themes that arose from our roundtable discussion, were the importance of recognising science and evidence. And Australia has a long heritage of calling for evidence based policy. Uh, and so I think again, potentially looking at the relationship between government and the public service would be very, really effective practical intervention in that, uh, because the public service historically has been good at giving uh, evidence-based uh, policy direction to government, as opposed to the dynamic that's perhaps developed in the last decade or so. The the issue of short-termism is also complex, and and I think that this could occupy you know probably a whole podcast in itself, let alone a number of different theses. Um, I don't have the the solutions, but I do think that it's important and potentially beneficial if we can engender widespread community discussion calling for long-termism, so calling for actions of government to not just reflect what our next economic cycle is, but what the consequences are over the next 10, 20 or 100 years, thinking about the, the generations to come, thinking about the future of humanity. Um, And I think one of the mechanisms that we can achieve that is by uh, increasingly uh, facilitating public discussion, getting everyone involved. Can I say that in in terms of Australia, we've seen a very interesting and important development in this concept of a national cabinet. Now, it's not a genuine national cabinet. It's just an expanded uh, COAG, Council of Australian Governments uh, type process. But it has dealt with the 
one of the failings of, of, of good policy in this country is the way our federation actually works. And uh, bringing states and the federal government together in a common purpose has been very important because it's established a framework within which now some of these risks, some of this longer-term strategic thinking can take place. And uh, I'm, I think that what you might see uh, is if the federal government doesn't lead on some of these other issues, say on climate or energy policy or waste policy or fuel security or whatever, the states have now been emboldened to say, well, look, we'll, we'll raise these issues and say that we need coordinated national responses to them. Now, that's a very important, it's a very rudimentary step, but it's a very important first step, I think, in changing the way they think about these issues. And rather than just see the opportunity to score points on the other side as an issue breaks, it's score points on the other side. We haven't seen it in this. We haven't seen it between the opposition and the government. We really haven't seen it between the states and the federal government. Although there have been differences in implementation because they have different responsibilities. I mean, in the end, the states run the hospitals and run the schools. The government doesn't have any of them. Federal government doesn't have any of them. But the framework has been there to start to break away from short-term politics and say, look, these longer-term issues are there. So I think one of the things that might happen is that the issues like um, climate, like uh, regenerative agriculture, like um, you know, dealing with specific dimensions of that, like waste, as I said, or fuel security, these are issues that really have got a, a serious national interest and uh, a coordinated response, uh, recognising the problem and starting a coordinated response may make a big difference. So you can break the short-term politics down. I mean, unfortunately, with a 24-hour media cycle, it's become, um, it's become a game. I remember when I lost in 93, Keating took me aside and he apologised, of course, some of the nasty things he'd said, which made me feel very uncomfortable. But then um, names he'd called me and so on. But he then said to me one thing that stuck in my mind. He said, John, you've got to understand but to me, politics is just a game, and I'll say or do whatever I have to to win. Now, I'd never thought of politics as a game, but since then it's become an incredibly short-term game. And, you know, the, the motivation in the 24-hour media cycle is to take an issue, score a point on the other side, shift the blame to the other side, move on to another issue another day. That mentality has to be broken, and I think this pandemic has created the circumstances in which in this country it can be broken. And, um, you know, now they've got to recognise the potential of the structures that they've put in place, as I said, in a very rudimentary way at this stage. But it could be turned into some very serious strategic planning. Let's say we take a view to, to the middle of the century. We want a net zero emission society by 2030 to 2050 or so. What do we need to do collectively and individually to actually make that happen? And uh, the states have all signed off on climate emergencies and net zero emissions, but they haven't done much about it. We have a framework now for them to move together. So, I, you know, I am, I am optimistic that this may make a difference to the way government is done in this country in a longer term strategic sense. So, John, do I take from that that you think that once this crisis passes, there is a possibility that that national government will continue in some form or will it go back to that more sort of narrow COAG agenda? Well, I, I am hopeful that it does. I mean, you can say hopeful, but um, we we have seen a significant change in attitudes and a desire to cooperate in the national interest, which we just haven't had. I mean, one of the elements of the short-term political game is a very cynical position that uh, governments has consistently taken, and that is, look, when a bushfire comes or when a drought occurs, we shouldn't worry. We just do what we can to get through them. Uh, because in the end it will rain 
in the end, the bushfire season will will, will terminate. Uh, and, uh, you know, that mentality has meant that you don't do any strategic thinking. So we come out of the drought, which is one of, I think, by some assessments, the recent drought, the current drought is the worst in our history. And we haven't learned very much. We haven't done anything very much to prepare ourselves for the next drought, the inevitable next drought. We haven't done anything to improve the resilience of our soils or the drought resistance of our soils, which are easily done and there's endless scientific and and practical evidence around as to how regenerative agriculture can make a huge difference to that, as well as reducing emissions as making a substantial contribution to the climate, uh, climate challenge as well. But you know, this is what can come from this sort of process, I think. And uh, we haven't learned anything about the, the drought. We haven't done anything to prepare better next time. We haven't done much to prepare better for the next set of bushfires, although we know with the, the climate-type predictions that these extreme weather events are going to occur, occur more frequently and with greater intensity. And that has been the history for since those predictions were made decades ago. So, you know, this is this is hopefully a set of circumstances where they will start to think about some of these risks. Uh, and uh, as Anna Greta said, this is not just about government. It's about everybody from the kitchen tables to all sorts of community groups and, uh, and business and academia and, uh, and civil society thinking about these issues, being aware of them, starting to demand action. Uh, and, um, you know, we can see that process can change. Uh, it's, uh, it's not, not understating the magnitude of the task, but you've got to start somewhere, and that's really where, where this commission came from. Now, turning from a sort of Australian perspective to a global one, addressing many of the challenges and risks that you've identified in the report really relies on people and nations working together. But we're in a global climate where, which is increasingly defined by competition and exclusion rather than working together for the global public good. So how can we encourage policymakers and governments to come together to reach common goals and address these transnational risks that you're talking about there? I think that's a really difficult question as well. And I think that brings us back to the fact that these risks are interdependent and that you um, that, that by the crises that we've been through in Australia and, and I'm cognizant that uh, in North America as they go into summer, they're about to head into their drought and fire season as well. So that, that as we're under threat, we're more likely to be defensive and that that puts us into a position where co- cooperation and collaboration is less likely. Um, and there's been reports out this week talking about the potential risks of uh, international conflict growing in these circumstances, not decreasing. How do we shift that? We shift that through conversations. We shift that through awareness. And part of what John was just arguing then um, is really asking for policy response in Australia to, to shift from a reactive approach to the crisis that's underway to a proactive um, and anticipatory uh, model where we can predict what might be happening next. Um, I think about this a lot with the bushfires, that if we had sat down as a national cabinet or some national model in June last year, we would have predicted the sort of magnitude of the fires that were ahead. The fire season we had over summer in Australia was not uh, was unprecedented, but it was not unpredictable. And there's no doubt we could have predicted it. 
And so recognising that there's a real advantage from the human experience uh, in shifting from reacting to the disaster as it unfolds to really planning for the potential for disaster and doing what we can to mitigate and reduce risk um, would be a really effective intervention. And that's true That's true in your street. It's true in your home. It's true with your local community. It's true on a state level. It's true on a national level. And it's true as part of a global discussion. Um, and so I think we can start the conversations at any point in that particular tree uh, in a way that potentially will flow down uh, into benefit for all of us. Yeah, I think we have to be careful as, as a nation to recognise that we are one of those nations that have depended fundamentally on globalisation and have been able to extract enormous benefits from freer trade and uh, uh, freer movement of people and capital and so on. Um, and uh, the danger in, in part of the response is this isolationist attitude that has emerged in some cases where you just, uh, and part of the response has been to close borders, for example. We need to recognise the reality of this challenge right now and start to plan for how we might rebuild globalisation uh, play a larger role in punching above our weight in international forums and so on to ensure that the process is actually turned to global advantage, within which, of course, a country like Australia will be a significant beneficiary. But we don't want it to drift into a world of, you know, of, of new reinforced borders and uh, genuine isolation and undoing the benefits of globalisation. I'm not saying there haven't been a lot of problems and issues with globalisation. There have been. Uh, but we need to recognise that uh, we need to, as a country, we need to make sure that we, we we don't come out of this pandemic worse off in terms of where we sit internationally. And indeed, we want to take the opportunity to to uh, revamp the processes, uh, uh, accentuate the good and, and positive and, uh, and, and recognise from the mistakes of the past. And we can do that as a nation. I think we have to do that. It's an imperative for us, uh, but it is an imperative for the globe as well. Now, we do do need to draw this discussion to a close. But before we do, I'd like to put a question to both of you. I mean, we've talked a lot about what both governments and policymakers should be doing and thinking uh, in terms of addressing some of the risks that you've identified in the report here. But what about individuals? What can individuals do in their everyday lives to help tackle some of the uh, some of the things that you've identified? Well, I think you've seen a lot of it happen in terms of response to the pandemic. I mean, uh, we're doing things, uh, we're accepting social isolation, for example, uh, in, in a way that uh, I never imagined I'd see. Uh, we've uh, changed the way we travel. We've changed the way we work. In fact, there have been some fairly significant shifts, I think structural shifts in business and consumer attitudes and and practices and and uh, confidence, which are really not going to be reversed very easily. We, for example, have found it much easier to work from home in many cases and more effectively in many cases. Uh, some of the schooling has uh, developed significantly in terms of distance education as well. And, um, you know, a lot of people have adjusted their own habits. I mean, we've, we've, uh, we've opened, I personally, we've started a vegetable garden. We've got some chooks, <laughs> all sorts of things that, you know, we, I used to do as a kid. Uh, and then we just moved on to this consumer society and ignored all of that. But we are thinking about what we eat. We're thinking about how we go about our daily lives, how much we travel, uh, where we work, how we relate to other people and in what way. Now, these are fundamental changes at an individual level. And, of course, all of us have been quite different in that response. 
but collectively we are making a difference. And I think uh, when we recognise we can do that, I mean the transition to me to a low-carbon society by uh, you know, completing our transition in the power sector by to uh, renewable energy, for example, and recognising the export potential of that. Moving to electric vehicles and autonomous trucking, uh, regenerative agriculture, new different building codes and and industrial process standards and so on. These are changes we can make relatively easily, uh, having demonstrated our capacity to respond to this pandemic. And that's what I hope we learn from. Absolutely. I agree completely. Um, I think about this in climate change circles that, that are, you know, it's a, it's a, it, there's no doubt that individual action uh, when we're thinking about our carbon footprint makes a difference. It often improves your personal health by thinking about how to reduce your carbon footprint. You might be influenced in the food that you eat or the transport that you in, in, uh, use in your daily life. The time that we're in at the moment is extraordinary disruptive, extra, extraordinarily disruptive. Um, we are going through a period of transformative change and quite a lot of, where, of what we're experiencing at the moment is something that's not been experienced before. We're in an unprecedented era. And so I think that this is a time where as individuals and as communities and in small groups, we should be spending time imagining, imagining what the future might look like. I want people to have confidence that engaging in the concept of the human future is important. There's never been a more important time to imagine what life might be like next year, in five years' time, in 10 years' time. And the interesting thing about the coronavirus experience is that so many things that we would have thought would be difficult to change are now up for active discussion. Do we want to change how we work? Do we need to work a 38-hour week? Can we work a 25-hour week instead? Should we be spending more time at home with our children? Should we be more engaged in their educational process? Should we be growing our own vegetables and sharing our produce with our friends and our neighbours? There's all, all sorts of elements of society which I think are up for, change, for potential for change now, which were much more difficult to negotiate a year ago. And if we think about that as a transformative change process, there's a high probability that these variables will continue to evolve and that we, we won't see things going back to any concept of a, an historic normal. Um, so I think that this is the, one of the most extraordinary times to be living through. We think about this in the historical parallels. We, we are all faced individually uh, with an extraordinary opportunity, um, and it's an extraordinary opportunity to imagine that human future. Yeah, can I just add one very simple point, and that is that in this process of transformation and recovery, the only limit should be the extent of our imagination. We should be prepared to consider all sorts of pathways and adjustments to achieve uh, the ends that are in our, our to our collective benefit, both nationally or individually, nationally, and globally. Absolutely. Thank you so much, John and Anna Greta, for uh, taking the time to have a chat to us today about this really interesting report and so many great insights in there. So, thank you, John, and thank you, Anna Greta. Thank you, Martin. Thanks, Martin. Great to speak again. Listeners, please reach out to us and share your questions, comments, and thoughts about today's discussion. You can find us on Twitter, of course, where we are APPS Policy Forum. That's Apps Policy Forum. Shoot us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. And don't forget to join us on Facebook. Our group is Policy Forum Pod there. And if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Policy Forum Pod, you should definitely subscribe to us. We're on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. We'll be back next week with another episode of Policy Forum Pod. But until then, stay happy and healthy, look after yourselves and each other, and cheerio for now.